Some sailors from Crete were sailing across the Mediterranean and Apollo took the form of a dolphin. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. A dolphin. And appeared to them in their boat. And he's going up to the, the ship and all the, the crew, they scared very much mm. what's happened. And he said, I'm the Apollo, not worry. And said, stop being sailors, come to Delphi and attend me at my temple. And they mm. came and they've been there ever since. It's said that she personally decapitated many, many men. But when they entered the palace of the Pashim, she came face to face with his wife, Hmm. who begged her to save her life and the lives of all the other women in the harem. She remembered her promise to the emperor's mother Hmm. years ago, and she turned toward her own Greek troops and wielded her sword in defense of the women of the harem. She saved every last woman in the palace, and this act is one of the centerpieces of her legend. Hey, History of Ancient Greece listeners. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And we are the hosts and producers of What's Her Name podcast. What's Her Name brings you the stories of fascinating women you've never heard of. Through compelling interviews with fellow academics, writers, and historians, we are taking world history and putting the women back in. We bring you biographies of women from all periods of history. Every episode also features era-appropriate music to really bring the story to life. From madams to martyrs, from emperors to astronomers, we cover all of it. Check us out at whatshernamepodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Hello, my name is Ryan Stid, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 102, Living on a Persian Prayer. Today's episode is brought to you by our new April Patreon supporters, Lindsay Marie Ludke, Trevor Coley, Claudia Morgenstern, and Samantha Parsons, as well as PayPal donors, Nilufar Atai and Lara Gilpin. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. As news began to spread about the Athenian disaster in Sicily, the Greek world was likely as stunned by Athens' defeat to Syracuse as it had been by their victory against the Persians at Marathon almost 70 years earlier. For many of their allies and their enemies, the myth of naval superiority that had allowed them to hold their empire together was now shattered. 
While back in Athens itself, there was a general panic throughout the city, as the loss of two entire fleets and so many experienced fighting men had a debilitating effect. Not only that, but the Athenians had now lost their best and most experienced generals. Demosthenes, Lamachus, Nicias, and Eurymedon all died in Sicily, and Thucydides, Alcibiades, and Hyperbolus were off in exile. Most of the men still in Athens, who had experience commanding the army or navy, were much older by this point, such as the famous tragedian Sophocles, who was well into his 80s, and Hagnon, who was in his 60s. Both had been former generals, but hadn't held command since well before the war. They also were moderates who had associated and worked with Pericles. Typically, the annually elected board of ten strategoi not only led the military and guided foreign policy, but they held quite a bit of influence in domestic policies as well. However, with very little influential or experienced generals now remaining, this reality quickly necessitated changes in the political situation of the city-state. In times of crisis, especially during war, Democracies throughout history have often voluntarily voted to put limitations on their exercise of power, and this is exactly what happened at Athens in late 413 BC. Thucydides notes, quote, As is the way of a democracy, in the panic of the moment, they were ready to be as prudent as possible, end quote. The terrified and uneasy Athenian people voted to appoint a board of ten probuloi, or counselors, made up of one man from each of the ten Attic tribes. It is known for certain that both Sophocles and Hagnon were selected, and it makes sense that the other eight would have been men similar to them, and so it's likely that they were all older, with 40 probably being the minimum age, and that they were moderate politically in order to provide a steady, experienced hand in overseeing these troubling times. According to Aristotle in his Constitution of the Athenians, it seems that there was no time limit on their tenure of office, and so they were probably authorized indefinitely until the crisis subsided. Although Thucydides does not make it clear the full extent of their powers and responsibilities, the probuloi may have been given the ability to present motions directly to the ecclesia thus replacing the function of the boule. Alternatively, and far more likely, they were authorized to work in concert with the boule in the drafting of motions as a sort of preliminary advisory board whenever the situation seemed to demand it. According to Aristophanes in his Lysistrata, they also may have taken over many of the prerogatives that used to be in the realm of the boule in order to end the economic slump as they were seen as prudent, moderate men who could counter the panic of the general populace within the democracy. Whatever their formal powers, though, their seniority, their selection for an unlimited term, and the vagueness and generality of their commission gave them unprecedented influence and authority. Essentially, in the terror of the moment, the ecclesia bestowed extraordinary powers on a board of respected and trusted moderates in the tradition of Pericles. Some of the first acts that the ten probuloi undertook in ensuring good order were the arranging of ambassadors to be sent to their allies, the securing of lumber for new ships, and the allocating of funds for the navy. An emergency shipbuilding program was undertaken in Athens, and they also began to fortify Cape Sunion at the southern tip of Attica, with watchtowers and a wall that was ten feet thick and a half mile long. 
The Cape controlled the sea routes to the islands, and especially to Euboea, and oversaw the cargoes of grain necessary to feed the population of Athens. In fact, Sunion was the first port touched by ships sailing into Attica, so it was important to protect the grain-carrying vessels that sailed by, and to keep a careful lookout against the revolt of their allies. They also abandoned the fort in Laconia, which had proved to be both costly and ineffective, and work on the Erechtheon and the Acropolis was suspended to conserve money. Essentially, any expenditure that was deemed unnecessary for their defense was curtailed, because the once overflowing treasury had been drained to pay for their constant campaigns and building programs. Of the nearly 5,000 expendable talents available at the beginning of the war, the treasury now held just 500 and the losses suffered by individual Athenians reduced their ability to provide ships for the state in the form of liturgies. As a result, whereas in the past only one triarch financed each ship, now the probuloi introduced the centriarchy, which literally means a triarchy together. This allowed two men to be able to share the expenses for a single ship, and therefore cutting the costs to an individual in half. Despite all of these measures, though, things did not immediately improve for the Athenians. And in fact, the financial situation actually continued to worsen, thanks in large part to the Spartan occupation at Decalia. Alongside a contingent of Theban soldiers, the Spartan garrison there began to raid Attica once again in 413 BC. At first, Athenian cavalry were sent out to guard the countryside but over time their horses either went lame from constantly scouting on the rocky ground or were wounded by the enemy in minor skirmishes. Ultimately, the Spartans and Thebans destroyed, or appropriated, many Athenian crops, pack animals, and property. In particular, the Thebans were the most opportunistic and diligent in their hauling off of Athenian property. According to an anonymous 4th century BC historian titled the Hellenica Oxyrhynchia, the Thebans, quote, took over the prisoners and all the other spoils of the war at a small price, and as they inhabited the neighboring country, carried off to their homes all the furnishing material in Attica, beginning with the wood and tiles of the house, end quote. Although Peloponnesian invasions in the Arcadamian War also caused severe devastation to Attic land and homes, these had only been short affairs at the beginning of the campaigning season, and when they were finished, the enemy troops returned back to where they came from. But as Decalia was a fortified outpost, equidistant from both Athens and Boeotia, the Spartans and Thebans were able to send out daily raids year-round which not only caused more destruction to Athenian land and property, but it also made the Athenians engage in constant, exhausting guard duty by day and by night, just in case the enemy would choose to venture too close to their city's walls. At the same time, the Spartans had placed their triremes at anchor near Oropus on the Attic coastline and blocked the overland supply route coming in from Euboea. Diodorus says that the probuloi responded by sending a fleet to Europus, but the unnamed Athenian generals in charge bungled the entire affair, losing 22 ships and barely getting the rest safely over to Eretria. The loss of the Euboean Europus overland supply route now meant that the Athenians would have to receive and send everything around Cape Sunion, a much longer sea voyage and a much costlier alternative. 
As landed estates in Attica were constantly being ravaged, the increased demand for imports necessary to feed the vast population, which once again was permanently domiciled behind the long walls, led to an inevitable rise in prices, putting more financial pressure on the state treasury, which also had to support the war's widows and orphans. Thucydides writes, quote, Expenses were not the same as earlier, but had become much greater as the war had become bigger and the revenues were draining away, end quote. Not only did the Spartan garrison at Decalia gravely interfere with Athenian agriculture and commerce, but in the process, around 20,000 slaves from throughout Attica deserted to Decalia, much in the same way that Helots had previously flocked to the Athenian fort at Pylos. Some of these Attic slaves were vital skilled workmen, but many more had fled from the silver mines at Larion, and this loss of their free labor was even more troubling for the Athenian economy. Ultimately, the mines were forced to close, and so Athens was cut off from tapping into its rich veins of silver. As a result, by the end of the war, the Athenian silver supply would be so low that they would be forced to melt dedicatory works of gold in order to mint gold coins, and they even began to mint debased silver coins, which were mostly copper but thinly plated with silver. In addition, it was because of these desperate financial times at this point in 413 BC that the imperial tribute system was abolished and replaced by an import and export tax. As we discussed in episode 64, the Athenians before this had collected duties of 1% and then 2% on their cargo, but only on those ships that had entered and left the Piraeus. Now, it was changed to a flat 5% duty tax on all ports throughout the empire. This new system actually brought in more money than had the annual tribute payments. It is not sure if the Athenian pro-Buloi knew that this would be the case, though. It's likely that they chose this course of action because they knew that if they had increased the annual tribute rate of their subject allies, there surely would have been widespread revolt in the empire. And without a fleet and experienced sailors at their disposal, the Athenians would have been helpless in putting it down. In addition, with a flat duty tax, instead of tribute on the city-states as a whole, the burden for providing imperial tribute now was being placed on the merchant classes, who had profited the most from the growth of the Athenian Empire. It was the Athenians' drastic shortage of money in 413 BC that underlay what turned out to be their most horrible atrocity of the war. As the Athenians were gathering reinforcements for the second fleet that had sailed out to Sicily under Demosthenes, as we discussed last episode, they had hired a corps of 1,300 lightly armed mercenaries from the Thracian tribe of Dii at the rate of a drachma a day for each man. But these men had arrived at Athens too late to take part in the campaign, as the fleet had already left. Since they would not have been paid until after their service, they were sent home empty-handed but under the guidance of the Athenian commander Ditrephes, who was given orders to use them as he saw fit in order to accommodate them for their troubles. On their way back north to Thrace, they sailed through the Euripus Strait, which is the narrow body of water lying between Euboea and the mainland. After sailing past the Attic coastline on their left, they first landed at Tanagra in Boeotia, where they hastily raided some coastal territory and snatched up some booty. That night, Unobserved, they made camp near a temple of Hermes, and the following morning at daybreak, they attacked the small Boeotian town of Mycalesos, 
whose inhabitants were unsuspecting and defenseless. They sacked the houses and the temples and butchered the pack animals and all of the Michalessian people, sparing nobody, not even the old or the women. They even assaulted a school for young boys. Thucydides writes, quote, The children had just come in, and they cut down every last one of them. End quote. He says that this disaster was unsurpassed in suddenness, horror, and depravity throughout the entire war. After the Thebans received news of the massacre, they immediately sent forth their cavalry to take revenge on the Thracians before they could leave Boeotia. They managed to locate and attack them just as they were about to board their ships to continue their journey home. Those Thracians already on the vessels moored out of the shoreline, while the rest, who were on the beach, turned to fight the Thebans. Thucydides says that the Thracian lightly armed mercenaries managed to hold their own, considering the circumstances. But in the end, about 250 were killed, with only 20 losses for the Thebans, though that number included one of their Boatarchs, Scyrphondus. In the realm of theater, with the elder Sophocles having been appointed as one of the pro-Buloi, the plays of his younger colleague Euripides would dominate the stage for the next several years. Retreating to his isolated cave on the island of Salamis, Euripides began to write tragedies for a people whose lives were now steeped in actual tragedy. Thousands of citizens had lost loved ones in Sicily, and the entire city was still in a state of trauma from the horrors of that disaster. At this time of deep grief, any tale of bloodshed or divine punishment would have seemed to be too much. And so, although in the past Euripides produced plays that brutally rebuked Athenian arrogance and inhumanity with themes of death, sorrow, and retribution, his newest ones were meant not to cut, but to heal. They continued to feature many of the same stock mythological characters in situations of tragedy, but ended happily with the major themes of deliverance, redemption, and reunion. For example, gods and heroes rescued the innocent from great perils, and loved ones believed dead were discovered alive and well. In these romances, Euripides fashioned a theater of escape, but on a higher plane than mere physical escapism and diversion. Therefore, these new plays were metaphors for renewal, purification, and fresh beginnings. Three of Euripides' romantic tragedies have survived. We are unsure of the exact dates for their production, but they were performed at the city Dionysia sometime in the years following the Sicilian disaster, and are covered in greater detail in episode 53. With his play Ion, Euripides stresses the collective identity of the Ionians as he follows an orphaned boy in his discovery of the true identity of his parents. Perhaps this was Euripides' way of propagandizing the need for Ionian unity in this hard time, when the Ionian subject cities were on the verge of revolt. The sea dominated Euripides' other two romantic tragedies, Helen and Iphigenia among the Tarians, both as a setting and a force of nature. In these plays, his protagonists face dangers at sea, but their trials concluded with daring and joyful rescues. In Helen, which is an alternate version of a well-known myth, she never went to Troy, but instead, Paris abducted a phantom version of her while she was whisked away to Egypt. There, she was later found and reunited with her husband Menelaus. Similarly, Iphigenia among the Tarians is an alternate, less gruesome version of the Iphigenia myth, 
Instead of being sacrificed at Aulis by her father Agamemnon, she is whisked away at the last moment by Artemis and taken to live among the Tarians, a savage local tribe in Crimea. But after he crossed the dangerous waters of the Black Sea, her brother Orestes serendipitously discovered and rescued her. At the end, Athena assured the audience that Poseidon would smooth the waves so that fair winds would allow them to return safely to the shores of Attica. Euripides puts his most hopeful and consoling line of the play into the mouth of Iphigenia, a woman stranded upon a foreign shore and who had given up hope of rescue. Quote, the sea can wash away all human ills, end quote. It's perhaps the perfect metaphor for a fresh beginning, after all seemed lost in Sicily. And in fact, it was the sea, and not the land, which served as the theater for the final phase of the war. The Spartans would occupy Decalia and ravage Attica for the rest of the war. And because of this, some ancient historians, such as Diodorus Siculus, deemed this final phase of the Peloponnesian War as its own unique entity, calling it the Decalian War. However, Thucydides considered the entire 27-year period from 431 to 404 BC to be one continuous war. Although he did not actually write the phrase, peace is only an armistice in an endless war, as quoted in the film Wonder Woman, it is a fitting recreation of what Thucydides believed in regards to the peace of Nicias. Modern scholars, though they tend to agree with Thucydides on the continuousness of the war, generally call this last phase as the Ionian War, since military operations would focus in or around Ionia. That's because as the Spartans ravaged Attica all year long and kept Athens in a perpetual state of siege, for all of their debilitating effects on the Athenian economy from Decalia, this alone would be insufficient to win the war. Even with limited ships and finances, the Athenians still controlled the seas and still received grain and imperial funds from abroad. And so the Spartans would have to be far more adventurous and challenge the Athenians at sea in Ionia, and especially in the Hellespont, as only this would bring about the dissolution of Athenian imperial revenue and prevent Hellespontine grain from reaching Athens. Earlier in the war, there was little hope of this owing to the strength of the Athenian navy, the Peloponnesian League's lack of finances for the construction and maintenance of a large fleet, and the Spartans generally having a more conservative military strategy. But several elements came together over the winter of 413-412 BC, which led the Spartans to implement a more aggressive strategy in the war, and to throw themselves wholeheartedly into defeating the Athenians by sea. First, in the wake of the great Athenian disaster in Sicily, Thucydides says that all of Hellas began to stir, as neutral city-states now felt that they should no longer stand aloof in the war, but should volunteer to march against the Athenians, as they believed that their end was near and that it would be best for them to be on the winning side. Meanwhile, the allies of Sparta felt even more anxious than before to see a quick end to the long, seemingly never-ending war. Above all, though, Many of the subject allies of the Athenians in the east and northeast began to contemplate revolt, but only if the Spartans assisted them. With all of these reasons for confidence, the ambitious war faction at Sparta pressed even more for a change in foreign policy, and the traditionalists, who opposed military operations outside the Peloponnese for very long, could no longer offer any substantive resistance. 
in time, the majority of the Spartans would come to realize that a more aggressive strategy would be needed. In the meantime, though, seeing that victory was well within their grasp, Aegis from Decalia took his army into central Greece on a campaign that reveals his and Sparta's first step towards a Spartan imperial foreign policy. Aegis and the rest of his aggressive war faction knew that central Greece held strategic importance as it could be used as a base from which the Spartans could stir up rebellions and gain territory in the northern Aegean. And so Aegis first marched his forces to the region of Oeta near the Gulf of Malus in an effort to extort money from them in reprisal for an old hostility. That being their attack on the former Spartan colony of Heraclea and Trachis. Despite protests and opposition from the Thessalians, though, Aegis didn't stop there, as he then continued to extort money from a number of local peoples. He also took a number of hostages, which were then sent to Corinth for safekeeping, in the hopes that their eventual ransoming would force their countrymen over to the Spartan alliance. Afterwards, Aegis began to make every preparation necessary for ratcheting up the war effort the following spring. In particular, in order to contend with the Athenians at sea, who by this point were already beginning to rebuild their fleet, Aegis commissioned the construction of a new Peloponnesian naval force of 100 triremes. It was ordered to be ready for action the following spring, and the ships were to be built by themselves and their allies. 25 Spartan, 25 Boeotian, 15 Corinthian, 15 Locrian and Phocian, 10 from Acardia, Pelene, and Sicyon, and 10 from Megara, Troezen, Epidaurus, and Hermione. Of note, the small number of Corinthian ships, 15, when compared to the 75 launched at the beginning of the war, may indicate just how severely Corinth had suffered in the last two decades. The Corinthian navy had been stretched thin during the Arcadamian War, and had been very active in the interlude period. This reduced expectation on Corinth may suggest a financial repercussion to their exploits that Thucydides has left unstated. In addition, the winter of 413-412 BC saw the beginnings of arguably the most important element that would be necessary for the Spartans to succeed in the east and northeast. That being the acquisition of financial backing from a power, the Persians, that had the wealth and desire to also destroy the Athenians. Although Thucydides has little to say about Greco-Persian affairs, as we have discussed before, it is clear that the Spartans, as well as the Athenians, had been sending embassies to the great king during the entirety of the Archidamian War. The Persians, though, were only drawn into the war when their new king, Darius II, ascended to the throne. As both the Athenians and Darius were in insecure positions at that point, Darius in particular had to deal with rival claimants to establish himself as king, and the Athenians were dealing with Brasidas' campaigns in Thrace. The two sides made a treaty in the form of a non-aggression pact. However, Persian policy towards Athens and Sparta and the years following the Athenians' defeat in Sicily was not determined primarily by Darius himself, but by the ambitions and desires of his two coastal satraps, Pharnabasis II and Tissaphernes. Although, of course, they wouldn't become involved without the king signing off on it. Pharnabasis was the current satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia in northwestern Asia Minor, directly southeast of the Hellespont, and his capital was at Daskilium. His great-grandfather, Artabazos, was the great-uncle of Xerxes, and he served as a general in the Persian army. 
Following the Greco-Persian Wars, he would serve as the first official satrap of the Pharnacid dynasty, which was named after his illustrious father, Pharnaces, who himself was an uncle of Darius the Great. This office was passed down to Artabazus's three descendants, Pharnabasis I, Pharnakis II, and finally, Pharnabasis II. We haven't come across any of these three men before in our narrative. In fact, the first appearance of Pharnabasis II on the historical record is in this very instance. On the other hand, Tissaphernes was the satrap of the maritime regions of Lydia, Ionia, and Caria in southwestern Asia Minor, and his capital was at Sardis. He was a grandson of Hadarnes, another eminent Persian general during the reigns of Darius the Great and Xerxes. The former satrap of these regions was Pisthunes, who, if you recall from episode 89, ruled from around 440 to 414 BC, and was the one who supported the Samians in the revolt against Athens. Pisthunes was likely a grandson of Darius the Great, and he became really rich from a satrapy, so much that he was able to use his money to recruit Greek mercenaries for his campaigns. With his vast wealth and Greek mercenaries at his disposal, Stesius records that after Darius II came to the throne, Pisthunes decided to take the opportunity of the confusion to revolt from the Persian Empire. It wasn't until 414 BC, though, that Darius would be able to rein in his western flank. At that point, he turned to Tissaphernes, who up until then had not yet entered onto the historical record either. Darius tasked him with suppressing the rebellion, which Tissaphernes managed to do by bribing Lycon, the commander of Pisthunes' Greek mercenaries, and by promising Pisthunes that his life would be spared if he surrendered willingly. As a result, Lycon and his Greek mercenaries deserted Pisthunes, who was forced to surrender. He was then taken to Susa before Darius, but the great king did not keep Tissaphernes' promise, and the rebellious satrap was executed. In appreciation, though, a grateful Darius officially gave control of Pisthunes' satrapy over to Tissaphernes. However, he first had to contend with Amorgus, Pisthunes' son, who, using the port of Iasus and Caria as his base, had either continued or renewed the revolt the following year in 413 BC. According to Andocides, in his speech, On the Peace with the Spartans, which was delivered in the early 4th century BC, after Athens had signed a non-aggression treaty with Darius II upon his ascension to the throne, with which his uncle Epilychus was involved, as we mentioned, the Athenians foolishly broke it here when they decided to support the rebel Amorgus. Although we are unsure who supported this policy, one might consider it hubristic for the Athenians to think that while they had just sent two fleets to fight Syracuse and Sicily, and the Spartans were beginning to raid Attica from Decalia, that they would choose to anger the Persians and open up a third simultaneous theater in the war. According to a fragmentary inscription, an Athenian called Melisandros was the man involved with physically supporting Amorgus in the east. Whoever he was, the Athenians collectively voted to send him aid in this endeavor. Not surprising, after the Athenians had received word of the disaster in Sicily, they would come to regret their fatal error of judgment and their betrayal of their eternal friendship with the Persians by supporting the revolt of Amorgus. Thucydides entirely omits these events, though, and his silence here has puzzled scholars. 
Some have concluded that he simply lacked the knowledge and that it wasn't him trying to purposely hide information, and this seems to be the most likely explanation. Because, as we know, he was not against pointing out the follies or mistakes of the Athenian demos at large. Whatever the case, Tissaphernes was under Darius's orders to either capture alive or kill Amorgus. In addition, and this is where Thucydides' narrative picks up, as the two satraps hope to exploit the Athenians' recent disaster in Sicily, Pharnabasis and Tissaphernes also had been ordered by Darius to collect the outstanding tribute from the Asiatic Greeks in their provinces, who instead of paying them, had been giving foros to the Athenians since the Greco-Persian Wars. And so it was for this very purpose that these two satraps hoped they could make use of the Spartans. Despite their previous non-aggression pact with the Athenians, it is clear that the Persians had never genuinely accepted Athens' right to collect tribute in Asia Minor, and had never given up hope of bringing these cities back under Persian control. And so, now that the treaty had technically been broken, the Persians wished to rectify the situation, and in doing so, they wished to align their aims with that of the Spartans. But as we have alluded to in the past, any potential Spartan-Persian alliance ultimately would necessitate the Spartans ceding control of these Asiatic Greek cities over to the Persians, which went against their proclaimed calls of freeing the Greeks. This is what hindered previous negotiations, as the Spartans were reluctant to prioritize the crushing of the Athenian Empire over the preservation of Asiatic Greek freedom. Eventually, though, those priorities would begin to change. Also during the winter of 413-412 BC, appeals for aid came to the Spartans from Euboea, Lesbos, Chios, and Erythrae, who all wished to revolt from Athens. Euboean envoys were the first to arrive at Decalia. Aegis immediately accepted their proposal and sent for Alchemenes and Melanthus, who were back in Sparta, to come to Decalia and to take command of the Euboean campaign. Not much is known of Melanthus, but Alchemenes was the son of a man named Sthenelatus, which may be the same guy who, as Ephor, spoke so strongly in favor of war some 20 years earlier, as we discussed in episode 90. These two men arrived with some 300 Neodomides, and Aegis began to arrange for their crossing over to the island of Euboea. But just before they left, additional envoys arrived from Lesbos, who also sought Spartan aid with their own revolt. The lesbian proposal was strongly supported by the Boeotians. The reason isn't stated, but they somehow managed to convince Aegis to postpone acting in the manner of Euboea for the time being. And so he made arrangements for Alchemenes and Melanthus to assist the lesbians instead. Alchemenes was to sail immediately with 10 ships, while the Boeotians promised to provide 10 additional triremes the following spring, and these were to be commanded by Melanthus. All of this was agreed upon and ordered by Aegis only, and without instructions from back home at Sparta, as his reputation by this point had given him enough gravitas to be able to send troops to whatever quarter he pleased and at any moment, without consulting the Garrisia or E-Force first. But that winter, two other delegations arrived seeking Spartan aid, one from Chios and Erythrae with an ambassador of Tissaphernes, and another on behalf of Pharnabasis himself. However, these did not go to Aegis at Decalia, but to the Ephors back at Sparta. As each petitioned for assistance with their uprisings, the rival satraps let it be known that they both had the authorization of the great king, and that Persia was ready to join in the war against Athens. 
but there was no way that the Spartans could aid both satraps at once, because their perpetual fear of a Helot revolt meant that they didn't want to stretch the resources so thin, with Aegis already at Decalia. Therefore, they had to choose a singular area to focus, whether they wanted to cooperate with Pharnabasis in Lesbos and the Hellespont, or with Tissaphernes in Chios and Ionia. This decision, though, wasn't so clear-cut, despite the fact that Aegis had decided earlier to assist the Eubians, and then the Lesbians. In fact, good arguments could be made in support of any of the four proposals. The Athenians kept their flocks and herds on Euboea, and cutting it off would effectively cut off their livestock provisions. On the other hand, Lesbos was a rich and strategically located island, which could be used as a base for a campaign to cut off Athens's lifeline to the Black Sea, that being their grain supply. In this endeavor, Pharnabasis' offer promised Persian financial support. They had brought 25 talents with them already and also offered access to the Hellespont itself, which might bring the quickest victory over Athens. The Chians, though, promised the Spartans that they could make use of their large fleet of 60 triremes, and Tissaphernes invited them to come over at his own expense. So the Spartans had a tough decision to make. In the end, though, Alcibiades gave his recommendation to the E4 Endius, and this must have held a lot of weight, as the Spartans chose to work with Tissaphernes and the Chians. But before they promised to commit any forces, they sent a perioic man named Phrynis to Chios in order to see if the Chians actually had as many ships as they had promised. When Phrynis arrived back with news that the Chians had told the truth, the Spartans then voted to bring them and the Erythraeans into their alliance and to send 40 triremes to join the Chian fleet for a total of 100. Some scholars have suggested that their sizable fleet was likely the deciding factor in choosing the Chian option as such a large force of triremes could form the core of a great navy that the Spartans wished to create if the revolt succeeded. It was decided that 10 of the 40 were to sail immediately under their admiral Melanchridas, while the other 30 would join the following spring, 412 BC. But before they could leave, an earthquake rocked Laconia, which frightened the superstitious Spartans into reducing the original 10 down to 5, and instead of Melanchridas, they were to be commanded by Halkidius. No information was given as to why the change of command, though. But even then, the equipping of these five vessels moved slowly, so that by the spring, they still had not launched from Laconia. While the Spartans did take earthquakes and omens seriously, strategic and political factors must have also played a considerable part in their delay. Ultimately, by the beginning of the summer of 412 BC, the Chians had grown increasingly annoyed by the Spartans' delay in their promised aid, and afraid that the Athenians would soon find out what was going on. So they began to urge that the Spartan ships be sent out immediately. The Spartans acquiesced, but instead of launching from Laconia, they sent three Spartiates to Corinth, with orders to haul out all of the ships currently there, across the Isthmus to the Saronic Gulf as quickly as possible and to sail them off to Chios. But Aegis's quota of ships also had not been fulfilled, and so only 39 of the requested 100 ships were anchored in the Corinthian Gulf. At the same time, Aegis could not have been very pleased when he received news that his own plan had been rejected by those back in Sparta for another. But after hearing that the majority of the Spartan people were bent on going to Chios first, he eventually relented. Furthermore, according to their bylaws, the Peloponnesian League had to be consulted before undertaking any expedition, 
so these 39 ships could not be launched until it was approved. When the League finally met at Corinth in the summer of 412 BC, it was decided that they would adopt the Spartan plan to send Halkidius to Chios with five Corinthian vessels, but that they also would dispatch a second fleet under Alchemenes to Lesbos, as Aegis had desired. In a later third mission, presumably after Chios and Lesbos were firmly in the Peloponnesian League's control, a third Spartiate named Clearchus would then take a force into the Hellespont. The League members voted for a little over half of their ships, 21 of 39, to be hauled across the Isthmus first, and for these to set off at once from the Saronic Gulf for Lesbos. This was to be done as quickly as possible, without worrying about having to conceal their movements, as they believed that the Athenians, who were still equipping a new fleet of their own, would not be able to stop them. But despite the situation that Athens had found itself in, the slow-moving Spartans continued to exercise great caution in preparing their five ships to be sent out to Chios under Halkidius. Furthermore, the Corinthians also refused to accompany their five ships to Chios until after the Isthmian Games had been completed later that summer. Although Aegis offered to take command of the expedition to Chios himself while they remained at home for the festival, they turned this down, and so another delay ensued. Not surprisingly, the resulting delay gave the Athenians time to discover the plot. They sent one of their generals, Aristocrates, to Chios where he accused the Chians of planning a rebellion. When they denied his accusation, as most of the Chian people had no knowledge of the plot, he demanded that they prove their good faith as allies by turning over seven of their ships with their crews intact. Because the oligarchically minded Chians feared that their plot would be opposed by the common people, and because Peloponnesian hesitation made them begin to doubt that the promised aid was even coming, they did as they were ordered and gave over these ships. The Isthmian festival then took place, and the Athenians under truce also attended. There, they secretly managed to learn even more about the Peloponnesian plans for Chios. And so, in late summer of 412 BC, when Alcamenes finally led his 21 ships out to sea from Cenchreae, the Corinthian port on the Saronic Gulf, an Athenian fleet of roughly the same size was waiting for them, seven of which were those given over from Chios. This completely surprised Alcamenes, and not wishing to engage the Athenians at sea, he turned around his ships and sailed back to their harbor at once. It was only a show of intent though, as the Athenians soon turned back and withdrew to Piraeus for reinforcements. While the Athenians were increasing the size of their fleet to 37, Alcamenes tried to sneak away southwards along the Peloponnesian coast, but his ships didn't go undetected and an advanced squadron of Athenian triremes chased after them. However, Alcamenes managed to evade them and make it safely to the deserted port of Spiraeum just north of Epidarian territory, and only losing one ship in the process. But then the rest of the Athenian ships arrived, and attacked Spiraeum by land and sea, as some sailed into the harbor against the beached Peloponnesian ships, while marines disembarked and charged against the enemy's forces. A confused but yet violent melee ensued, and in the process, the Athenians disabled many enemy ships on the beach. They managed to kill Alcamenes, while losing only a few of their own men. Then, they boarded their ships and detached a small number of them to blockade the Peloponnesian fleet, while they anchored the rest of theirs at a small adjacent island. 
Afterwards, they set up a camp on the island, and since they were determined to not let any Peloponnesian ship make it into the Aegean, they sent a request back to Athens, asking for more ships, so that they could have the necessary numbers in order to keep 24-7 watch on the enemy. At the same time, some Peloponnesian forces had arrived over land. According to Thucydides, the situation seemed so dire that the Corinthians thought about burning their ships that were being besieged in order to prevent them from falling into Athenian hands, until finally they resolved to haul them up onto the shore and to guard them with their land forces until a convenient opportunity should arise for them to attempt an escape. This detail by Thucydides is somewhat suspect though, and his disdain for the Corinthians is well documented. It seems more logical that an experienced naval power such as Corinth would only decide to wait for the remainder of their fleet to join them, most of which had yet to be pulled across the isthmus, rather than decide to destroy their important and very expensive ships. Back in Sparta, news of the defeat and the death of Alcamenes tempered their enthusiastic mood, and many at that point decided against sending out more ships. But Alcibiades stepped forward and played a key role here in ensuring that the expedition went forward. Ultimately, he persuaded Endius and the other ephors to send five ships under Halkidius directly to Ionia, with himself on board, before the news of their defeat could arrive over there. He would tell them of Athenian weaknesses and assure them of Spartan eagerness, and he argued that the Ionians would readily believe his testimony. But Alcibiades had reasons of his own to push for this mission, despite all of his valuable contributions to the Spartan cause as their advisor. Alcibiades began to anticipate that he would fall out of favor with the Spartan government very soon. According to Plutarch, for some time he had taken advantage of Aegis's long absences, where he was off with the army at Decalia, to seduce his wife, the Spartan queen Timaea, also called Timonassa. Apparently, the previous winter, at one point when Aegis was back in Sparta, an earthquake had driven him from the bedchamber of his wife into the public's view, and so out of superstition, for ten months he had no further intercourse with her. But despite this, Timaea miraculously had grown pregnant with a son, who would be named Leotachides, and so rumors quickly began to spread that the father was Alcibiades. He therefore didn't want Aegis to find out that his wife was pregnant while he was still in Sparta, because clearly the Spartan king would know that the baby wasn't his, and would eventually hear the rumors and come to suspect him. And so he needed to leave Sparta and achieve a success so great as to make him invulnerable, even to Aegis's eventual wrath. Or failing this, he had to escape to the last place that could offer him refuge against both the Athenians and the Spartans, that being the Persian Empire. In any case, the expedition Ionia presented both possibilities. At about the same time in the summer of 412 BC, the 16 Peloponnesian ships from Syracuse, which had served under Gallippus, had begun to make their way back from Sicily to the Peloponnese. But a squadron of 27 Athenian vessels, under a man named Hippocles, had been ordered to be on the lookout for these ships and ambush them near the island of Leucas. Although they lost one vessel in the struggle, the other 15 Peloponnesian ships managed to evade the Athenian fleet and to sail safely into Corinth. Meanwhile, in the late summer, the Spartans at last galvanized themselves into action, as the Spartan commander Halkidius and Alcibiades sailed out from Laconia with a small squadron of five ships to Chios. 
These ships, unsurprisingly, were detected by the Athenians, and so eight of their vessels that formed part of the blockading fleet at Spiraeum peeled off under Strombachides to chase after them. But the Athenians were not able to catch up to them, and so the Spartans continued on to Ionia. In order to maintain the secrecy of their approach, they seized every ship that they encountered along the way, though they let them all go when they arrived at Coricus, the first point that they touched on the Ionian mainland. There, they were visited by pro-oligarchic Chians, who urged them to immediately set sail for Chios without announcing that they were coming. The Spartans agreed to this, and the two sides planned for their arrival at the exact time of the next Chian council, so that they could make a swift and impactful arrival. Therefore, upon seeing the Spartan ships and soldiers making a landing on their island, the majority of the Chian people fell into a state of shock and then panic. This only increased after speeches were given by both Halkidius and Alcibiades, which promised that many more Peloponnesian ships were sailing on their way, though he said nothing of their fleet being blockaded at Spiraeum. As a result, the terrified Chian people voted to revolt against Athens. Afterwards, Alcibiades sailed three of his five ships over to Erythrae and Chlysomenae, and these cities revolted too. And so, with only a tiny fleet and brilliant chicanery, he succeeded in gaining 60 warships, a safe base of operations, and the first critical defections from the Athenian Empire. While Chios, Erythrae, and Clazomenae were engaged in fortifying and preparing for the inevitable Athenian response, the news of their revolt speedily reached Athens. While the loss of Erythrae and Clazomenae was not welcome news, Hearing that Chios was involved as well had an even more profound effect, as the Chians were Athens' most powerful remaining subject ally, were still autonomous, and were the sole remaining supplier of ships. Therefore, they feared that Chios's defection would be the rallying point for any and all of their disaffected subject allies that wished to revolt. And so, in that dangerous moment, the Athenians put forth great zeal and effort in order to prevent the loss of Chios. The Ecclesia immediately voted to cancel their law, which imposed a penalty on whoever proposed or put to vote any proposal for using their 1,000-talent reserve fund. Then, they at once voted to use this money to man a large number of ships, as well as to strengthen their fleet by putting into commission their reserve triremes. Pericles had put both of these aside at the beginning of the war with orders that they were to be used only in a dire emergency. The Athenians had managed to avoid tapping into these reserves throughout the entire war, but the strategic situation in late 412 BC necessitated for that to change, as the potential loss of Chios must have been considered to be a national emergency. In addition, the Ecclesia voted that Strombachides and his eight ships were to again peel off from the blockading fleet at Spiraeum and were to be sent to Chios at once. They were to be followed shortly thereafter by 12 more ships under Thrasocles, which also were to be taken from the blockading fleet. Finally, as the Athenians were not sure of their loyalties at this point, the seven Chian ships at Spiraeum also were recalled to Athens. Those free Chians from the ships were put into confinement for the time being, while the slaves on the ships were given their freedom. The Athenians then speedily manned and sent out 40 fresh triremes to replace all of those that had departed in the Peloponnesian blockade. 
The military campaigns of the next 12 months, from the summer of 412 to the summer of 411 BC, appear very disjointed, due partly to the unfinished revision of Book 8 by Thucydides, and partly to the piecemeal nature of the fighting itself. In essence, though, the Spartans and the Persians attempted to widen the revolt of Athens' subject allies, while the Athenians tried to contain it, which resulted in both sides sending out increasingly larger fleets. Thucydides first reports that while the Athenians were readying their fleet to sail to Chios, Strombachides and his eight ships immediately left Spiraeum and sailed to Samos. There, one Samian vessel was commandeered and deposited at Teos in order to ensure that they continued to remain loyal. At the same time, Halkidius and Alcibiades, with 23 Laconian and Chian ships, had set sail from Chios in the direction of Teos, while the land forces at Clazomenae and Erythrae moved along the shore to support them. They hoped to ambush this small Athenian force and to blockade them in the harbor by sea and land. But Strombachides was informed of this in the nick of time, and so he was able to put out from Teos just before their arrival. In fact, as he was sailing away, he saw a much larger enemy fleet approaching at a distance, not wishing to engage them in the open sea either. The Athenian squadron quickly fled back to Samos. When both the naval forces of Hawkidius and Alcibiades and the Clazomenian and Erythrian land forces arrived at Teos, with no Athenian assistance any longer to defend them, the Teans were forced to accept them into their city and to flip to the Spartan side. Then, with the assistance of some Persian troops that had also arrived under the command of Stages, a lieutenant of Tissaphernes, Halkidius' forces began to demolish the wall that the Athenians had built on the landward side of Teos. Once Teos was secured, Halkidius and Alcibiades both sailed southwards to Miletus a key Ionian city whose revolt would further weaken the Athenians' position in the eastern Aegean. Alcibiades had friends among the wealthiest, powerful men at Miletus, and he wished to work with them to quickly bring the city over to the Spartan side, and under the control of an oligarchy, before the anticipated arrival of a much larger Athenian fleet. In fact, at about that time, the second smaller wave of Athenian ships arrived in the eastern Aegean as the twelve under Thrasycles had left Spiraeum and sailed to Samos. They joined up with those of Strombachides and pursued after the Peloponnesian fleet with their combined 19 ships. But the Athenians arrived too late and were not able to catch them, as Halkidius and Alcibiades had already sailed into Miletus and caused the city to openly declare for revolt. And so, the Athenians had to take up their station at the adjacent island of Lade, where they could keep watch and wait for the arrival of the rest of their fleet later that summer. Meanwhile, as we discussed earlier, both Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus had sent envoys to the Spartans the previous winter, but it wasn't until this point in the summer of 412 BC that a more serious effort was made by either the Spartans or Persians to finalize a treaty, and in fact, over the next year, we would see a series of negotiations and agreements, but for one reason or another, they were inadequate or not fulfilled, and thus were renegotiated and agreed upon once again. The first attempt occurred in the wake of Miletus's revolt. Tissaphernes traveled the short distance there from Sardis, and with Halkidius' assistance, a first treaty was agreed upon between the Spartans and their allies on one side, and the king and Tissaphernes on the other. 
This so-called Treaty of Miletus is very one-sided and remarkable, though, in that it had a clause in which the Spartans agreed to concede Greek cities to the great king. Quote, Whatever country or city the king has, or the king's ancestors had, shall be the king's. End quote. Therefore, perhaps inadvertently by Halkidius, the Treaty of Miletus effectively gave the Persian king control over not only Asia Minor, but also Thessaly and Boeotia, which had Medized in the Persian Wars, and therefore fell under the phrase that which the king's ancestors had. The treaty also laid down that the two sides should work together to prevent the Athenians from collecting foros from their subject allies, that the Spartans would help the king against any rebellious subjects, and likewise the king would aid them if any of their allies rose up against them, and finally that the consent of both allies was required in order for any peace to be made with the Athenians. Basically, the war would now become a joint enterprise between the king of Persia and the Peloponnesian League in order to defeat Athens. Clearly, though, the Persians were the main beneficiaries, since, in theory, the treaty recognized their claim over the Asiatic Greeks and beyond and did not formally commit them to paying the Spartans. Because of this, it's not surprising that the Spartans chose to keep this agreement secret from their allies. It's likely that Alcibiades was instrumental here in Halkidius' willingness to accept such an unbalanced treaty. He must have argued that a quick agreement, no matter what it stipulated, would give them the personal credit for achieving an alliance with the Persians before some other Spartan would be able to swoop in and do so, and that the details were unimportant and could be changed later. That's because expediency would have best suited Alcibiades' own desires, as he needed to achieve something great and immediately. No matter the treaty's flaws, though, Alcibiades said shaken Sparta from its timidity and lethargy, and for the first time, he opened a door for a Spartan victory. While these negotiations with Halkidius and Tissaphernes were taking place, Although the Athenians at Lade were outnumbered by an enemy force at Miletus, they were still able to set up a blockade of the city. That's because Halkidius did not even give them any resistance, and he even turned down the Chians when they offered their services. Like most full-blooded Spartan commanders, he was reluctant to engage in naval battle against the Athenians, even against a much smaller fleet. This timidity and fear on Halkidius' part would have serious consequences, as the blockade of the Peloponnesian fleet at Miletus would allow the Athenians to send out into the Aegean a reinforcement squadron of ten ships under Diomedon and Leon, and more importantly, to develop Samos as their naval headquarters against the Peloponnesians. In doing so, a brutal civil war broke out on the island. Supported by the Athenians, the Samian Democrats revolted against the oligarchic government, they put to death 200 from the upper classes, while exiling 400 more, many of which fled to Anaya, a city-state across from Samos on the Ionian mainland, where they established a resistance base. The Athenians then distributed to their Samian democratic supporters the lands and houses of the dead and exiled oligarchs and stripped those who remained of their civic rights, including the right of intermarriage with the lower classes. In addition, as a reward, and since they were now sure of their fidelity, the Athenians decreed autonomy for the Samian people, a benefit they once had before the revolt around 30 years earlier. All of this might have been prevented had Halkidius' fleet of 23 ships pushed back the 19 of the Athenians and established Peloponnesian control of the eastern Aegean. 
but as it stands, they did not press their advantage. In the later summer of 412 BC, the Spartans had their proverbial foot on the Athenian throat, and instead of crushing them right then and there, they mistakenly chose to give them just enough breathing space to survive, a dire mistake which the Athenians would capitalize on. Afterwards, the Keans had manned ten more ships and sailed to the oligarchic Samian base at Anaya, where they hoped to gain intelligence of the happenings in Miletus. When they received a message from Halkidius that the Persian rebel, Amorgus, was near at hand with a land army, the Keans decided to sail after him. But as they approached the nearby temple of Zeus, they were attacked by the reinforcement squadron of ten Athenian ships under Diomedon and Leon that were en route from Athens to Samos. Diomedon managed to capture four of the Keon ships, though they were empty, as the men had jumped into the water and swam ashore, while the other six and their crews made it safely and took refuge in the city of Teos. Afterwards, Diomedon led his now fourteen ships onwards to Samos. At the same time, the Keons had sent off another unspecified number of ships, unaccompanied by their land forces, to cause the revolt of Lebedos and then Herai. These two cities sat to the south of the other revolting cities of Erythrae and Clazomenae, in the vicinity of Teos. After achieving success in their mission, both the Keon fleet and the army returned home. Meanwhile, the zealous Keons had also sailed with a third detachment of 13 ships to Lesbos. These were met by four ships under the command of Deniades, a perioikic man from Laconia, and together they incited rebellions at Methymna and Mytilene. The four Laconian ships were left behind, and the thirteen Keons then sailed off to the Hellespont. At the same time, the land forces of the Keons and Peloponnesians, under a Spartiate named Aeolus, marched northwards along the Ionian coastline passing through Phokia and Kine, and bringing these important cities over to the Peloponnesian side. Back on the Peloponnesian shore, those 20 ships at Spiraeum finally broke through the Athenian blockade and sailed back to Cancrii near the Isthmus, where they then prepared for a voyage to Chios. Here, they were met by Astyachus, who was to replace Halkidius as the new navarch of the Peloponnesian fleet for the following year because the Spartans swapped out their naval leadership annually. Astyachus was tasked with weakening the allegiances of the subject allies to Athens, to cause them to revolt, and to demonstrate Spartan support by assisting them in any Athenian retaliation. But before the 20 Peloponnesian ships were ready to sail again, he received intelligence that Diomedon and Leon had left Athens with the aforementioned reinforcement squadron of 10 ships likely thinking that Chios would be their eventual target, and knowing that the Peloponnesian fleet was blockaded at Miletus, he decided to push forward immediately with only four ships, with orders that the others should follow when they were readied. But when Astyachus arrived at Chios, he learned that Diomedon and Leon had added an additional 15 ships from Samos, meaning they were now sailing with a total of 25, but instead of sailing against the Keons, they went to Lesbos in order to put down the rebellions at Methymna and Mytilene. So Astyachus put to sea with one Keon vessel so that he could render whatever assistance possible to the Lesbians. When he arrived at Pyrrha on Lesbos, he set out to join the main Keon force at Eresus. Unfortunately, he was continuously one step behind the Athenians, because when he arrived at Eresus, he learned that just hours earlier, 
Leon and Diomedon had stormed Mytilene and defeated the Keons both on land and in the harbor. So with Mytilene now being blockaded by 25 Athenian ships, Astyachus could not offer them any help with his one vessel. Therefore, he decided instead of trying to find a way to get into Mytilene and to lead their defense, he would arm the inhabitants of Eresus and incite them into revolt too. Then, he sent a detachment of lesbian hoplites by land, while he sailed along the northern coast of the island, to try and save the revolt at Methymna and to encourage one at Antissa. But he quickly realized that these two tasks were no longer possible, and so the resulting Athenian recapture of Lesbos occurred just as Astyachus withdrew and sailed back to Chios, and the land forces went back to their respective cities. When he arrived at Chios, he finally received some good news, as six additional Peloponnesian ships from Cancrii were waiting for him there. With Lesbos now secure, Leon and Diomedon then sailed to Clazomenae and captured the city. From there, they finally began to make preparations for an attack on the island of Chios. First, on their ships, they swapped out hoplites in place of the usual thetes to serve as rowers, as these men would be stronger in land battles once they landed on the island. Then, they needed to establish several bases for conducting a blockade of Chios and assaults from the sea, so they gained control of the Onousai, a group of islands just off the northeast point of Chios, as well as the two fortified towns of Sedusa and Patelium that sat on the mainland just opposite these islands in the territory of Erythrae. With their occupation of these bases, they then began to put a blockade of Chios in place. Some Chion ships came out to stop them, but after several minor naval skirmishes, the Chians refused any further battle at sea and sailed back to their island. This allowed the Athenians to come ashore, and they landed at Cardamile, in the northeast of the island, and at Bolissus in the northwest. Then, they defeated the Chion army in three straight land battles. Afterwards, the Chians ceased to meet them in the field, and instead shut themselves up in their cities, which allowed the Athenians to begin to raid their countryside. The blockade and plundering was so successful at weakening their economy, that some Chions began to conspire to restore Athenian leadership on the island. When they learned the news of this potential revolt, the ruling oligarchical government summoned Astyachus, who currently was at Erythrae with his four ships, to come and aid them in neutralizing the threat posed by these conspirators. When he arrived, Astyachus and his Chian supporters took some of the conspirators hostage, and the revolt was quickly suppressed. But all was not well now as Chios still was under blockade and was exposed to constant raids in their countryside. Meanwhile, the Athenians with 20 ships at Lade still had Miletus under blockade as well. At one point, they made a descent into Milesian territory at Panormus, which sat to the south of Miletus. The Spartan commander Halkidius came down with a small force against them, but he lost his life in the skirmish that ensued. Later in October, Three Athenian generals, Phrynicus, Onomocles, and Scyronidas, sailed out from Samos with a fleet of 48 vessels, some of which were triremes, but others were troop carriers transporting 3,500 hoplites, 1,000 Athenian, 1,500 Argive, and 1,000 from their Ionian allies. This is a remarkably large force so soon after the Sicilian disaster which goes to show both just how resilient the Athenians could be and how important it was for them to get things under control in the eastern Aegean, 
as well as how foolish it was for the Spartans not to press their earlier advantages. In any case, after the Athenian fleet landed at Miletus, they assembled into battle formation. The Athenians took up their position of leadership on the right, their Ionian allies were in the center, and the Argives manned the left. Opposite of them were 800 Milesian hoplites on the right, an unknown number of Peloponnesians who had come with Halkidius on the left, those mercenaries in the service of Persia in the center, and Tissaphernes and Alcibiades on each wing with an unspecified number of cavalry. As the battle began, the Argives on the left charged recklessly and broke their order. They paid for their rashness with defeat and the loss of 300 men at the hands of the Milesians who opposed them. The Athenians and their Ionian allies fared better, though, as they routed the Peloponnesians and drove off the Persians and their mercenaries, after which the Milesians prudently fled within their city's walls. Thucydides then points out that the Ionians on both sides overcame the Dorians, as the Athenians defeated the Peloponnesians and the Milesians routed the Argives. Apparently, this was striking enough to warrant special mention. In any case, the Athenians now controlled both the land and sea around Miletus. After setting up a victory trophy, they prepared to build a wall around the city, with the hope that if they could make them surrender, the other cities also would fall back into line. However, that same day, news arrived that a large Peloponnesian fleet of 55 ships, commanded by a Spartan named Theramenes, plus 22 from Sicily, led by their Syracusan nemesis, Hermocrates, had now arrived at Leros, an island just off of Miletus. After discovering that the Athenians had already surrounded Miletus, this combined Peloponnesian and Sicilian fleet of 77 ships left Leros, sailed into the Gulf of Iasus, and camped at Tecusa in Milesian territory. That night, Alcibiades rode up on horseback to Tecusa, and told Theramenes and Hermocrates of the Peloponnesians' recent loss in battle. He then advised that if they did not wish to lose Ionia to the Athenians once again, they needed to bring relief to Miletus at once. Accordingly, they planned to set out to take back the city the next morning. Meanwhile, that same evening, the Athenian and Argive generals debated on their next course of action, now that a much larger enemy force was in the vicinity of Miletus. The majority wanted to stay and fight, but their commander-in-chief, an Athenian named Phrynichus, opposed this decision, arguing that after the disasters which they had just endured in Sicily, he could not justify any decision for them to undertake such a risky action as this would be, unless it was absolutely necessary. Since he believed that it was not a necessity, he ordered them to pack everything up and to sail back to Samos, where they could concentrate all of their ships an attack when a better opportunity should arise. Thucydides gives his approval of Phrynichus' decision here, saying that he, on this occasion, showed himself to be a man of good sense. And so, that evening, the Athenians sailed back to Samos, leaving their victory incomplete and Miletus free from both siege and blockade. The Argives, though, were angered by this, and so when they arrived back at Samos, they sailed home and would play no further part in the war. This would be a huge loss for the Athenian cause. As soon as it was morning, the Peloponnesians set out for Miletus. When they arrived and found that the Athenians weren't there to oppose them, they began to put things back in order. 
But the Athenian retreat also had another costly consequence, because soon afterwards, Tissaphernes came to Miletus and persuaded the Peloponnesians to help him attack Amorgus at Iasus. Unaware of the Athenian withdrawal, the Iasians assumed the approaching fleet was Athenian, and so they did not mount a defense. As a result, the Peloponnesians easily captured Amorgus alive at his base, and they sacked the very wealthy city of Iasus. The people were sold off as slaves to Tissaphernes at the stipulated price of one Derek stater a head, funds which the Peloponnesians desperately needed, and Amorgus's mercenaries were added to their own army, as most came from the Peloponnese. These were led off by Pederitus, who the Spartans had sent to take over command of defensive operations on Chios. In addition, Amorgus and the city of Iasus were given over to Tissaphernes. Ostensibly, Amorgus was eventually taken in chains to Darius's court, where he would have been executed. The importance of this event was threefold. It brought the end of the revolt of both Pisthunes and his son Amorgus, which had plagued Darius for three years, and which Tissaphernes had been specifically ordered to suppress. The Athenians had lost another ally, and the Spartans and Persians had cooperated to achieve their first victory together. Despite what Phrynichus had argued, the Athenians were still superior at sea, and had they stayed to fight, the entire war might have taken a different course. Just like with the Spartans' hesitancy earlier, there would be severe consequences for Athenian inaction here. Not only did their departure give the Milesians breathing space and new hope in the rebellion against the Athenian Empire, but on the domestic front, it deprived the moderate democracy of the pro-Bouloi from achieving a victory which would have given them the prestige and credibility that would have enabled them to resist the oligarchic plots that were beginning to form in Athens. There will be more on that next episode. Over the winter of 412-411 BC, now that Iasus was in his possession, Tissaphernes built up its defenses. At the same time, the Peloponnesians caused Cnidos to revolt, and he installed a Persian garrison there. Then he went back to Miletus to deliver a month's pay to all of the ships, as he had promised, at a rate of a drachma, or six obols, a day for each man. Presumably, because he already had gotten from them all that he had wanted, Thucydides then mentions that Tissaphernes eventually began to reduce Peloponnesian pay to only three obols, or half a drachma, using the excuse that he had to consult the great king first, and if he agreed, he would give the full drachma once more. However, after the Syracusan general Hermocrates began to protest, Tissaphernes relented somewhat, agreeing to give the full amount of pay for just five ships. Basically, Tissaphernes began to pay 30 talents a month for 55 ships, and to the rest, for as many ships as they had above that, he paid three obols a man. As we will see next episode, the duplicity of Tissaphernes over the amount and timeliness of the pay for the Peloponnesian fleet stemmed partially from the influence of Alcibiades. That same winter, the Athenian fleet at Samos was joined by 35 more ships under Harmonus, Strombichides, and Euctemon. Phrynichus also called back their squadron at Chios, as well as any ships that they had outperforming various reconnaissance missions in the Aegean, in order to repair any damages and to deliberate on their next course of action. Ultimately, it was decided that after any necessary repairs were made, these three men, with a total of 30 ships and a thousand Athenian hoplites, would first sail to Lesbos, where they would oversee affairs there, before descending upon Chios. 
while the rest of their fleet, which was 74 ships, would advance upon the Peloponnesians at Miletus. And so, at some point shortly thereafter, an Athenian squadron of 30 ships left Samos for Lesbos. Along the way, they came across three Chian vessels sailing near Cape Argonus and decided to pursue after them. But a great winter storm came down from the Hellespont, which caused the three Athenian ships most forward in their pursuit to be wrecked and blown ashore to the city of Chios itself. Their crews were either slain or were taken prisoner. The rest of the 27 Athenian ships managed to find safety in the harbor known as Phoenicus, beneath Mount Mimas, and then moved on to Lesbos. There, they began to fortify their hold on the island, presumably because they expect it, and rightfully so, that the lesbians might try to revolt once again. At the same time, Astyakis did not just sit idle either. After putting down the pro-Athenian insurrection, he left Chios with 20 ships, 10 Peloponnesian and 10 Chian, and made two attacks, one on Patellium and another on Clazomenae. Both of these missions were not only unsuccessful, but strong winds caused most of his ships to be detained around the islands of Marathusa, Pele, and Dramosa, which are close to Clazomenae. Unfortunately for Astyakis, he became separated from the rest of his fleet. Since he was Navarch, his ship sailed in front, and so the strong winds carried him, and only him, further off to Phokia, and then to Chaim. After the winds finally died down, Eight days later, the rest of his fleet was able to sail off to meet him at Kaim. While there, representatives from Lesbos arrived, requesting assistance from the Peloponnesians in another uprising against Athens. Astyakis knew the importance of Lesbos, and so he was eager to provide them with help, reasoning that if they were successful, the Spartans would gain a significant ally and even if they failed, they would still bring harm to the Athenians, as it would cause them to use resources and to lose men just to once again put it down. But the Corinthians and their other allies were averse to this on account of its failure the first time around, and they didn't want to lose any more of their own men or ships in what they believed would be a fruitless endeavor. And so, without any ally support, Astyakis was forced to decline the lesbians' offer. Afterwards, Astyakis returned to Chios, where he found that a Spartan named Pederitus had arrived. He had been sent to take over control of Chios and the Spartan land forces, while Astyakis was to remain Navarch. Before he left, though, Astyakis once again listened to proposals for a revolt from lesbian envoys, but he once again had to decline them, as his plans this time were opposed by the Chians and Pederitus. Astyakis was greatly angered by the refusal, and so he vowed to never come to the assistance of the Chians again. Then he stormed off and sailed away from Chios with 11 ships, 5 Corinthian, 1 Megarian, 1 from Hermione, and his 4 Laconian. On his way to Miletus, in order to formally assume his command as Navarch of the Peloponnesian fleet, he stopped for the night at Mount Coricus in the territory of Erythrae. There, he narrowly escaped capture by a large force of 30 Athenian ships sailing from Samos to Lesbos. The two forces had been separated only by a single hill between them, and neither became aware of the other's presence. By pure chance, he managed to avoid the Athenians, because on the next day, he received a letter from Erythrae that some liberated Erythraean prisoners who were pro-Athenian had come from Samos to betray their city and requested Spartan assistance. 
Since he did not wish for the Erythraeans to fall back into Athenian hands, he immediately turned around and sent a message to Pateridus for him to sail over and join him. But after inquiring into the supposed treachery, the two Spartan commanders found that the whole story had been made up. Though Thucydides doesn't give specifics as to why, nor if any punishments were handed out for wasting their time. Whatever the case, Pederitus then sailed back to Chios, and Astyochus continued on once again towards Miletus. Also, during the winter, a Spartan named Hippocrates sailed out from the Peloponnese with twelve ships, ten from Thurii, one Syracusan, and one Laconian. Their intended target was the Carian city-state of Cnidos, and upon their arrival, they left behind half of their squadron, six ships, to guard the city, while the other half sailed around the promontory of Triopium to seize all merchant ships arriving from Egypt. When the Athenians at Samos learned of this, they sent a small squadron to Triopium, where they seized the six enemy ships guarding Cnidos, though their crews managed to escape. Afterwards, the Athenian squadron sailed into Cnidos and made an assault on the largely unfortified city. They were on the verge of taking it when darkness fell, and during the night, the Cnidians quickly began to improve their city's defenses and were reinforced by the aforementioned crews who had escaped from their ships at Triopium. And so on the next day, when the Athenians assaulted Cnidos once again, they were repelled this time. Although they failed to take the city, as a sort of consolation, the Athenians decided to plunder Canidian territory before returning back to Samos. At about the same time, Astyochus finally made it to the Peloponnesian fleet stationed at Miletus. When he arrived, he learned that the Spartans and Persians had begun to revise their first treaty. With the death of Halkidius and in Astyochus's absence, Theramenes had taken over command of the fleet, and he had received various complaints about dissatisfaction with Tissaphernes over receiving pay for the fleet. So he concluded that due to the Persian satraps' duplicity, the first agreement, which was made with Halkidius, who no longer was alive, should be voided and updated. No doubt Tissaphernes only agreed to this reluctantly. And so, a second treaty was soon negotiated. It was similar to the first, except for the very crucial stipulation that the Persian king agreed to pay for the expenses of all troops who, who, at his request, were in his territory. And in return, the Spartans agreed not to replace the Athenians as the collectors of tribute from the Asiatic Greeks. The second treaty also dropped the requirement that each side was to help the other put down rebellions a stipulation which had favored Persia exclusively, as the Spartans didn't have imperial subjects in the eastern Aegean. But this change amounted only to verbal niceties, as Persia had already achieved its goal of using Peloponnesian forces to capture Amorgus and Iasus, and therefore had no eminent need of any further assistance. On the other hand, Sparta had once again made significant concessions. Although the Persians promised to pay Greek forces, the agreement said nothing about the specific amount, and the Spartans agreed to not attack any territory or attempt to raise money from the cities that the Persians regarded as their own. So why did the Spartan leaders make another unfavorable agreement? It's because the Spartans' bargaining position was abysmal, and this was likely the best that they could have hoped for at that moment. Tissaphernes had already achieved all that he had hoped for, and if the Spartans were irked with him, so be it, as it was they who needed Persian money and support the most now. 
And so after signing the second treaty with the Persians, Theramenes formally handed over the fleet to Astyachus and sailed away in a small boat, likely back to Sparta. Thucydides says that he would never be seen again and that his fate is unknown, so he may have encountered a storm along the way and drowned at sea. Meanwhile, those 27 Athenian ships at Lesbos crossed over to Chios in order to put the island under blockade and siege once again. As we mentioned before, after Pederitus had arrived at Chios and taken over control of their defenses and the Peloponnesian land forces, he executed those Chians accused of being Athenian sympathizers and replaced their moderate regime with a narrower oligarchy. His harsh measures crushed pro-Athenian activity, but it had the opposite effect in that it also caused the Chian people to grow increasingly more and more suspicious of one another. As a result, even though for the moment they held the numerical advantage at sea, they were now convinced that neither themselves nor the mercenaries under Pederitus' control were a match for the Athenian forces, likely because they suspected that the moment a battle did occur, there would be a treasonous plot afoot, and so they offered no resistance. Therefore, the Athenians were able to land on the eastern side of the island and began to fortify Delphinium a place with a good harbor not far from the city of Chios itself. This location would allow the Athenians to cause the same kind of continuous damage to the Chian countryside as the Spartan fort at Decalia had to Attica, in that it destroyed the Chian economy. To make matters worse, since the Athenians now controlled the sea, the Chians would not be able to import any necessities either. In addition, the Chians owned an exceptionally large number of slaves and treated them with particular harshness. In fact, Thucydides says that they had the highest of any in Greece besides Sparta. And so many of them were very willing to flee to the safety of Delphinium, eager to help the Athenians in any way that they could, in the same way that those Attic slaves at Larion fled to Decalia. At the same time that the Athenians were pressuring the Chians, the rest of their fleet at Samos sailed out towards Miletus. When they arrived, they tried to coax the Peloponnesian fleet into battle on multiple occasions by making sorties out against them, but every time, despite the fact that the Peloponnesians had a numerical advantage of about 90 triremes against the 74 of the Athenians, Astyachus declined their challenge and so the Athenians eventually and begrudgingly returned to Samos. Meanwhile, the worsening plight of the Chion's position led Pederitus to dispatch a message that requested Astyachus to immediately bring aid, while Delphinium was still in the process of being fortified, and Chios could still be saved. However, per his last angry vow, Astyachus denied this request. When Pederitus urged him to reconsider, Astyachus once again declined. And so a frustrated Pederitus denounced him as a traitor and reported his conduct back to Sparta. However, despite what he may have said, his reasoning was probably more sound than just petty anger. That's because between these two Spartan commanders stood 101 Athenian triremes, 74 at Samos and 27 at Chios, which Astyachus would have to evade or fight through, and this was no small task. Regardless of whatever sound reasoning he may or may not have had, his refusal to fight the Athenians in front of Miletus and to save their allies at Chios caused Astyachus's crews to complain openly that his policy was undermining the Peloponnesian cause, that he had been bribed, and that he had attached himself to Tissaphernes for his own gain. 
Thucydides here portrays Astyakis as being timid and inept, and because of this, many scholars have come to regard his leadership, or lack thereof, as being a key reason for Sparta's early failures in the Ionian War. While this may be true, Halcadius was quite inept as well. And once again, both of their inactivities can most likely be explained by the fact that most Spartiate commanders at sea were naturally cautious and reluctant to take on an Athenian fleet. And therefore, this timidity and ineptness was systematic, rather than a trait solely belonging to Astyachus. Still, faced with pressure from his allies, and likely the fear of criticism, or worse, from back in Sparta, Astyachus finally capitulated and began to make preparations to sail to Chios. Meanwhile, thanks to the letters of Pederitus denouncing Astyachus, the Spartans began to grow suspicious of their navarch's intentions, though they likely already had grown dissatisfied with his performance thus far. As a result, orders immediately were given to their allies to man and equip 27 additional ships, which were to be commanded by two Spartiates named Antisthenes and Clearchus. In addition to the rowers and hoplites, with them would be 11 Spartiate commissioners, led by a man named Lycus, who had been an Olympic victor in the chariot race and a man of significant diplomatic experience. These 11 men were given the authority to assess the situation on the ground at Miletus, and if they thought it best, to dismiss Astyachus and to appoint Antisthenes as the new navarch. If they decided that Astyachus was still suitable to remain in command, then they were to serve him as Zimbuloi, or advisors, in order to ensure that he conducted the campaign in an appropriate manner. Also, after their arrival at Miletus, Clearchus was to take these 27 ships north to the Hellespont in order to assist Pharnabasis in closing the straits to the Athenians. This shift in strategy surely was influenced by the failure of their first plan so far but it must have reflected a political shift too. That's because the Spartan ephor, Endius, and his close confidant, Alcibiades, had initially been the ones to support the decision to go to Chios. But now, Endius was out of office, as the ephorship lasted just one year, and Alcibiades was on the outs with the Spartan government. With Chios under siege, the Peloponnesian fleet accomplishing little, and negotiations with Persia only producing unsatisfactory agreements and unreliable support, It seems that most Spartans now believed that it was time for a change in strategy. Therefore, the complaints of Pederitus Pederitus were likely just the catalyst for the rethinking of a policy shift that was already well underway. And so, later that winter, when these 27 ships were readied, they sailed out from Cape Malia in the southeastern Peloponnese and journeyed across the open sea. At Milos, they came across a squadron of 10 Athenian triremes. They were able to capture three of them, but not before the crews were able to escape. After they burned the enemy Athenian ships, they decided to change their route and sail southwards towards Crete, as they were now afraid, and rightfully so, that the seven Athenian ships that escaped would give information of their approach to the Athenians at Samos, and thus would cut them off from reaching Miletus. Although this lengthened their voyage, they were able to sail safely around the southern Cyclades and land to the east of Canidus at the Carian city of Canus. From there, they sent a message to Astyachus, requesting for him to send a convoy along the coast to escort them back to Miletus in safety. 
Although he was in the midst of his preparations to sail to the aid of Chios, he was delighted when this news came from Connus, as he now had a valid reason to give up on the Chian expedition, which he had begrudgingly prepared for, and one that even his allies would be forced to accept. And so he likely gleefully proceeded southwards along the coast towards Connus. Along the way, he came upon the island of Kaz, whose main city had recently experienced a massive earthquake that had wrecked its infrastructure. Therefore, its people had fled into the high country. Noticing that Kaz had been abandoned, Astyakis took the opportunity to land and plunder whatever he could. Then, as they sailed near the Carian city of Cnidos that evening, Astyakis received intelligence that a squadron of Athenian ships was in the vicinity of Syme. As those on the 27 Peloponnesian ships had earlier predicted, the seven Athenian ships that had escaped near Milos had informed the Athenian fleet at Samos of their approach. So 20 ships were sent out under the command of Charminus with instructions to watch out for the southwards approach into Miletus of the Peloponnesians. And so it was these 20 Athenian ships that Astyakis learned were in the vicinity of Syme. He must have hoped that with his numerically superior fleet, and with the element of surprise, he would jump the Athenians here, which would bolster his waning credibility among his allies and get him off of his back. But as he approached Syme, he encountered heavy rain and foggy weather, which caused his fleet's alignment to meander and thus fall into disorder in the dark of night. Therefore, by the morning, his fleet had become so separated that only his left came into sight of the Athenian squadron. Still, as they were coming from the north, this took Charminus by surprise, because he knew nothing of Astyakis' plans and was expecting only to encounter the 27 Peloponnesian ships coming from the south. Furthermore, since Astyakis' left flank was the only part of his fleet present at the moment, Charminus assumed that this was all of the enemy's forces. Therefore, he only sent out a small portion of his 20 ships against them, while leaving the rest behind to continue monitoring for the southwards approach of the 27 Peloponnesian ships. As the two forces clashed in what historians call the Battle of Syme, the Athenians managed to sink three Peloponnesian ships, disabled several others, and had the advantage. That is until the main body of Astyakis's fleet unexpectedly came in sight. At that point, the Athenians found themselves surrounded on every side, so Charminus gave the order for their retreat. As they fled, six of their ships were caught from behind and disabled. Thucydides, though, doesn't report whether the crews were captured or managed to escape, but the other 14 made it safely to the island of Tetusa and from there to Halicarnassus. It was a moral victory for Astyakis and a humiliating defeat for Charminus, one for which he would become the butt of at least one joke on the Athenian stage, in Aristophanes' Thesmophoria Zuzai. Afterwards, Astyakis set up a victory trophy on the island of Syme, and then he sailed his fleet to Cnidos, where he sent word to those a little further south at Canus that he was now clear for them to bring their ships and join him. After the two Peloponnesian fleets met up and merged at Cnidus, they found that the remaining 54 Athenian ships at Samos had combined with those 14 of Charminus at Halicarnassus, and were seeking to avenge their defeat. Their combined number was 68 triremes, and although Astyakis still had a numerical advantage with around 90, he refused to fight a major sea battle once again. He was only interested in smaller skirmishes apparently. And so the Athenians collected their dead and went back to Samos. 
Afterwards, the Peloponnesian ships remained at Cnidos, where they underwent any repairs that were needed, while the Spartan commissioners conducted their investigation of the charges against Astyachus. They ultimately acquitted him and he remained as Navarch, but with them as his advisors. Then, Tissaphernes arrived at Cnidos, and the commissioners met with him to present their grievances. Although the Spartan commanders, Halkidius and Theramenes, had behaved as though the previous two treaties with Persia were binding, technically they had never been formally ratified back at Sparta, and Lycus in particular repudiated them, since they supported Persia's territorial claim in recovering the Asiatic Greeks and everything on the Greek mainland as far as Boeotia, which gave, as Thucydides puts it, a median master to the Hellenes instead of liberty. And so Lycus claimed that the Spartan government would not recognize any of the existent treaties and would refuse to accept Persian money on such terms. And then he demanded that Tissaphernes conclude a third, more equitable treaty. Naturally, this was met by an angry walkout by Tissaphernes, as he no doubt had his fill of their endless haggling. He left Canida shortly thereafter, recognizing quite clearly that the Spartans needed him more than he needed them and it would have been great naivety for Lycus to not realize that in any deal in which the Spartans would receive Persian gold, that at the very least, they would have had to abandon their claims as the liberators of Greece by selling out the freedom of the Asiatic Greeks back to Persia. One explanation for the behavior of Lycus, though, might be that as the Spartans had decided to move the war geographically from Ionia to the Hellespont, away from his satrapy to that of Pharnabasis, he wanted to make their demands impossibly difficult for Tissaphernes to accept, and thus give them a legitimate excuse, at least in their eyes, as they planned to go back on their deal and enter a new theater of operations. An unexpected opportunity, though, delayed the move to the north. Soon after Tissaphernes left Cnidos, pro-oligarchic Rhodians arrived in order to persuade the Spartans to support rebellions and to install oligarchies on their island, which they argued would bring their rich resources and manpower to the Peloponnesian side. The Spartans quickly agreed to this, as they hoped that this would provide them with the necessary funds to pay for the war themselves and no longer be relying upon Tissaphernes' money. And so the Peloponnesian fleet, with 94 ships, sailed from Canidas to Rhodes and incited its three prosperous cities, Camarus, Lindus, and Iasus, into revolt in January of 411 BC. When the Athenians received word of this, they dispatched a fleet of 75 ships. But by the time that they reached Rhodes from Samos, they were too late. So they lined up their ships off the island's coast in battle formation and challenged the much larger Peloponnesian fleet to come out and fight. But again, Astyachus refused. Instead, he had his men haul their ships ashore, and for the rest of the winter, they remained inactive. The Athenians, though, at first did not disembark and try to force a land battle on Rhodes. But back in Athens, popular opinion was turning against the Athenian general Phrynichus. Due to the high cost of his decision previously not to fight the Peloponnesian fleet at Miletus, and for his opposition to Alcibiades' plan of an oligarchic revolution at Athens. More on that next episode. Eventually, an Athenian named Pysander convinced his fellow citizens to depose Phrynichus, as well as his co-general, Screonides, and to replace them with Leon and Diomedon, who were currently overseeing operations at Chios. When the two new generals received word of the change towards the end of winter, 
they immediately sailed to Rhodes and parted ways with Phrynichus's cautious strategy. By ordering the Athenian fleet to make an attack on the island while the Peloponnesian ships are beached. After they disembarked, they defeated a Rhodian army that came out against them in a pitched battle. Then, they got back on their ships and moved the fleet to Halke, an island close by to the northwest of Rhodes, that they used as a base of operations to monitor the Peloponnesians and to continue to launch raids on the Rhodian coastline for the rest of the winter. So this was the military situation at the beginning of 411 BC for the Athenians. They had established a naval base at Samos, and they had two fleets currently plying the seas, one trying to put down the rebellion at Chios, and a larger one now at Halke. The situation in Chios was trending in their favor, and it was too early to tell for Rhodes. For a year and a half after the Sicilian disaster, the Athenians had somehow pushed on. The situation could have been a lot worse than it was though, and they managed to survive for several reasons. First and foremost, their enemies lacked initiative. Although Athens was temporarily without a fleet, Corinth and Syracuse were slow to bring theirs into the Aegean, and Sparta's other allies were also slow to furnish troops or ships. The Ionian city-states that rebelled expected protection, and when that didn't come, many rejoined the Athenian side. Also, at Sparta, they were divided as to how to barter the Ionians' freedom in exchange for Persian gold, and so their negotiations with Persia were slow, which frustrated Spartan battle plans. Ultimately, despite the burst of Peloponnesian energy that erupted in the wake of Athens' defeat at Sicily, the Spartans soon reverted to their natural sluggishness, and their efforts would only remain lukewarm thanks to the dynamic energy of Alcibiades, and for the internal political issues in Athens itself. On the next episode, we will see how the Athenians succumbed to civil war for the first time in nearly a century, and how Alcibiades had a hand in it. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 103, An Oligarchic Coup. (music) 